When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Brian, here we are, season two of Lies Agreed Upon. It's great to be back, season two. Who knew we would have a season two, right? I know. It's amazing. I I think it's so great how much positive feedback we've had from everybody and that it's just making it all the better for us because we enjoy doing it. And so it's great to know that people have been enjoying listening to it. Right. And if you are just joining us now, go back and listen to season one. That's where we explored how mainstream film and TV processed 9-11. And as we get closer to the 20th anniversary of 9-11 this September, we think you'll find it interesting to revisit the impact that event had on, had on popular culture in the years since it happened. And this season, we're going to take up a general theme as our organizing principle instead of a single event like 9-11. We've decided to focus on rebels and rebellions, revolutionaries and revolts, insurrectionists and traitors, freedom fighters, patriots. All of these are terms that have come up a lot over the past year, particularly since January 6th. And in fact, many of those who stormed the Capitol claimed the American Revolution as inspiration for their actions. In fact, the infamous Lauren Boebert, who is the congresswoman from Colorado, tweeted 1776, the morning of the 6th. However, on the other hand, many others have asserted that the founding fathers would absolutely deplore the current violent disregard for the Constitution. I think we really are going to be talking for the foreseeable future about a 1-6, the same way we talked about 9-11 and the behavior of those on 1-6, though, was far less violent and disruptive than the actions of the revolution-era rebels. But our school textbooks, you know, popular biographies, even the standard political rhetoric have really done a good job of draining the violence out of the events of the 1770s and distancing the founding fathers from what's left. And I think as we are talking about uh, the next season and the first, certainly the first couple episodes, this has complicated Americans' attitude towards the American Revolution and to revolutions and rebellions in general, and also our feelings about you know who are freedom fighters versus insurrectionists and traitors, who's a hero, who's an anti-hero. Uh, all of these things are are rolled up into our season. Yes, and so this season we're going to take a long look at how Hollywood responded to contemporary events in the twentieth and twenty-first centuries by retelling the stories of rebels and revolutionaries and the rebellions and revolutions that they were part of. Yep. And along the way, we'll also be exploring what gets called a revolution and who gets counted as a revolutionary. Spoiler alert, sometimes those labels are compliments and sometimes they're accusations. We always open our episodes with Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. 
but it's probably worth reiterating here at the beginning of our second season how the name of our podcast signifies the way that we approach our topics. It comes from the Napoleonic era. Napoleon hated that he wasn't going to be in control of his historical legacy because he ended up on the losing side at Waterloo. And when he realized that he was going to be powerless to shape the narrative, he just decided that he was going to declare that it didn't really matter because after all, history was simply a set of lies agreed upon. And we started this podcast because we're always interested in how versions of history get used by writers, producers, and directors to comment on contemporary events. So sometimes Hollywood wants to challenge the established narrative. Other times it uses a familiar story to disguise a discussion of something else. But more often than not, Hollywood simply wants to lean on familiar tales that make their work easier. Um, we figure there are a lot of people out there like us who are both cinephiles and history buffs. And like us, you would love to learn about the often volatile relationship between history and Hollywood. That's what this podcast is all about. And by the way, another little aside, we should probably clarify that we tend to use the term Hollywood as a shorthand for mainstream TV and film. It doesn't need to be American in its origins. You know, borders are very fluid these days when it comes to uh, who's producing TV shows and movies. But generally speaking, we're focused on stuff that is hoping to reach a broad and general audience, no matter what country it seems to come from. To start off this season we thought it would be a good idea to look at the revolution our listeners think they're most familiar with, the American Revolution. Later in the season, we'll expand our scope to look at events elsewhere in the world, and in particular, how rebels and insurgents took the West at their word, the supposed champions of democracy and enemies to oppressors, only to find out that that's not always the case. And we're also going to expand the definition of revolution to include some social revolutions and see how, at different times, uh, those revolutionaries and revolutions have had their edges softened, their biographies modified, so that they became less confrontational and more palatable, or that something different about that revolution became the focus of movie makers' attention. And, and then finally, we'll talk about some cinematic depictions of failed rebellions and doomed freedom fighters. So let's get started. One of the things you know, we noticed is that there are surprisingly few films and TV series set in or around the American Revolution. Now, it's actually kind of strange once you go looking uh, to realize how few there are. One of the reasons why The Patriot you know, the Mel Gibson vehicle directed by the guy who directed Independence Day uh, probably immediately comes to into our listeners' minds is because there aren't many more. But there are lots of books. And over the next two episodes, we're going to look at four TV series in total, but three of which are adaptations of books. Uh, the series are HBO's John Adams, AMC's Turn, Washington Spies, the History Channel's Sons of Liberty, and a joint CBC and BET production called The Book of Negroes. 
our very clever name for this episode is the Adams Family. We compare and contrast John Adams and Sons of Liberty, which focuses on his cousin Sam. John Adams is adapted from one of those, you know, books you get for your father-in-law for his birthday, a Pulitzer Prize winner written by David McCullough, who it's worth noting is not a trained historian. Sons of Liberty is not reflective of any historical research whatsoever. Uh, This is not to say the characters and events aren't real, but it's safe to say these founding fathers are like none you've ever encountered before. And as an aside, there is also a graphic novel series that has the same name, Sons of Liberty, that is set in the revolutionary era. But its two heroes are young runaway slaves who get superpowers. Now, I haven't read these graphic novels yet, but they sound like they'd be a blast and totally ripe for cinematic adaptation. So I'm on the lookout for that. Yeah, I'd watch that. And what's weird about Sons of Liberty is that they think they're superheroes too, but they're not even trying to, you know, they're not ironic about it in any way. So, okay. So what are the lies we get upon relating to the American Revolution? First of all, that the revolution was simple and quick and had an obvious outcome. Second, that the founding fathers were the only important actors in the revolution. And third, that the Revolutionary War was waged between idealistic freedom fighters and corrupt occupiers. Good guys versus bad guys, clearly defined. And we've paired up John Adams and Sons of Liberty because they work really well together to kind of uphold each of these lies, despite the fact that they go about it very differently in terms of their style, and also are very different in terms of the ideology that they're supposedly championing. And as we always do in this podcast, we'll first recap the productions that we discuss for those who are unfamiliar with them. And uh, I think that at this point, we're not going to worry about spoilers too much because I think we all know how the revolution turned out. Well, I don't know. Maybe we still have to figure out how it turns out. But I, yeah, you get our point. Um, HBO's seven-episode miniseries, John Adams, ran in early 2008, coinciding with Barack Obama's first year in office. And it is a pretty faithful adaptation of David McCullough's mammoth biography. Uh, The series was directed by British director Tom Hooper, who works in all genres, and adapted by Kirk Ellis. Tom Hanks was a producer, following up his successful and excellent World War II series on HBO, Band of Brothers. Uh, The cast is stellar, as you might expect from a prestige project like this, and they really cleaned house during award season. Paul Giamatti is John Adams, and Laura Linney is Abigail. And you can tell that their letters form the basis of the scripts. Other notable performances include David Morse as George Washington, Stephen Delane as Thomas Jefferson, Tom Wilkinson as Benjamin Franklin. Why are Brits always playing the Founding Fathers? Um, I also like Danny Houston as uh, Sam Adams in in this show. And you'll notice Justin Thoreau, Rufus Sewell, and also uh, Jeljko Ivanik. I've always been a huge fan of his, but I have never known how to pronounce his name. But he's great. Yeah, he's a very good uh, John Dickinson, who was the most articulate opponent of Adams in in the uh 
Continental Congress. So John Adams, the series, covers about 50 years of his life, and by extension, the first 50 years of the so-called American experiment. Because it traces the biography of this particular founding father, the action of the revolution, you know, the, this, you know, the complicated community loyalties, the risks to body and property, you know, the broader economic hardships, and the straight-up violence is both relegated to the earlier episodes and is also happening elsewhere because Adams himself was not present even in the Americas during most of the revolution. Uh, the series was filmed like so much of these things are in colonial Williamsburg and Hungary is what passes for all the European stops on Adams' sojourn abroad. The other show we'll be discussing, Sons of Liberty, couldn't be more different, although this History Channel production was also filmed in Eastern Europe and again stars many British actors as the revolutionaries. But this time they're young and gorgeous and fit, and the events look much more like the film version of a video game than the film version of a David McCullough biography. That's right. And in this depiction of the revolution, Sam Adams is the central character, played by Ben Barnes, uh, he's probably familiar to listeners as Prince Caspian from you know two of the Narnia movies, or, or also as Logan in Westworld. He's had about 20 years shaved off of Sam Adams' real age, and this is allowing him to you know do parkour across the rooftops of colonial Boston. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the rest of the cast includes Henry Thomas as Sam's older and more staid cousin, John Adams, but Actually, in real life, John Adams was the younger one by more than a decade. And Jason O'Mara is a classic, noble version of Washington. And uh, Dean Norris, of all people, yes, Hank from Breaking Bad, plays Ben Franklin. I guess I, I asked to have an American play one of the founding fathers, and we certainly got it in Dean Norris. Yeah, there's no no one more American there. But the real standout is, is Rafe Spall. He's a talented son of Timothy Spall, and he plays John Hancock, someone we usually just sort of joke about for his giant signature. Uh, he's a much less important character in the other TV shows and films about the revolution, but Hancock's central role here is key to the quite different focus of this three-part, six-hour miniseries. The series also starts earlier. It starts in 1765, and concludes with the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, neither of us are historians who specialize in this period, but we're pretty sure that the entire revolution wasn't Sam Adams' personal project for growth and, and uh, self-realization. Nevertheless, there are aspects of this series that we want to discuss because in some ways, this show portrays the motivations of historical actors more realistically than other shows have. So again, let's remind ourselves of the lies agreed upon we'll, we'll be addressing in this episode and what was going on when these shows were actually conceived. Yeah, when I teach both the French Revolution and the American Revolution, my, my students always express surprise at how long they lasted and how much stuff happens between the well-established 
momentous events we tend to focus on in textbooks. I also teach the American Revolution from the British perspective, which generally blows students' minds. And I point out that it was less a revolution than a case of under new management, as most of the power structures, privileges, and forms of oppression remained as far as the average poor white, freed black, and enslaved person were concerned. And by characterizing the revolution as quick and simple with an inevitable outcome, that's line number one, and conducted primarily by the founding fathers in the form of a glorified debating society, that's line number two, both popular culture and basic elementary and secondary school civics textbooks have encouraged Americans to imagine it was wholly motivated by idealism and noble intent and carried out by always moral and righteous patriots. That's slide number three. John Adams, the miniseries, ticks all those boxes. Yeah, if you recall from season one, we're, we're interested in how historical events are used by the creators of entertainment to talk about or react to contemporary events. And it's really hard not to imagine that Tom Hanks and HBO were motivated to use the founding fathers to critique the outgoing Bush administration, one that was widely seen as immoral, starting wars based on knowingly false information, sanctioning rendition, torture, and imprisonment without trial. A David McCullough biography is really made to order for that sort of thing. Right. And as we are you know, witnessing the end of the war in Afghanistan, we have to remember that in 2007, we are just in year six of that war and year four of a war in Iraq. Iraq was supposed to be quick and easy. The U.S. would be greeted as liberators and educate the poor Iraqis about the inherent superiority of democracy, private property, and limited government. Uh, we can see in John Adams, the miniseries, not the person, a similarly uh, oversimplified imagining of what is involved in regime change. The series cannot adequately portray the sacrifices of revolutionaries, the ones we know and the ones we don't, or just how many people wanted nothing to do with it at all. And in fact, it's interesting to note that even in the 2000s, when the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan raged, really undermining any hopes about spreading the American experiment abroad, this easy peasy representation of the American revolution wasn't recognized as problematic. The makers may have been thinking that they were refuting the Bush administration's actions, but in many ways they weren't refuting the Bush administration's fundamental assumption that it was going to be quick and simple. And it doesn't even uh, really come up in reviews of the miniseries. So lies one and two, that revolution was quick and easy and mainly fueled by the founding fathers' persuasive philosophical arguments, are very well served in John Adams. And if we go back a little earlier, uh, it's probably hard to remember that in the 1990s, the GOP started to have a zero-tolerance policy when it came to tax increases. You might remember Grover Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform, where he made everyone sign a no-tax-increase pledge, uh, and he made it a requirement for, for Republican candidates uh, at both state and national level. And then you bring in the Cook brothers uh, and other alumni of this no-tax group, 
and they weaponized this platform against their fellow Republicans and Democrats alike. They provided the funding, more importantly, and the organizational know-how for the supposedly grassroots Tea Party movement. Now, obviously, the Tea Party ends up being directed against the Obama presidency. His presence was horrifying to many on the right for obvious and ugly reasons. The loosely organized coalition of interests, some radical and racist, others just Newt Gingrich contract with America in new clothes, all tried to claim some deep connection to the founding fathers to justify what were, in essence, self-serving interests. Here's former Republican Congressman Joe Diagiardi being interviewed in 2010 about the Tea Party and its roots in this idealized version of the early republic. Whatever happened to the notion of public servant? Well, the national public servant, we had many of them when this country started. They were called the founding fathers. They designed a system where they thought that Congress would be citizen representatives. Many of them said that this would be a part-time job, uh, but now we've gotten, as you can see, many people entrenched, uh, the incumbency protection program, redistricting, um, the role that money plays. Uh, we've gone far afield of what was envisioned by the founding fathers in terms of citizen representation in government. And that's why you have the Tea Party movement right now. That's why you have people really angry about what they're witnessing, because they don't see us as representing, representing them and as representative government anymore. What are we as a country? Are we a representative democracy based on we the people? Or are we going to change those first three words in the Constitution to we the government? Right. He, he sounds kind of reasonable here, you know, blaming both parties in a sense. But his argument that only rank amateurs can represent the people as the founding fathers intended is so presumptive and typical of Tea Party rhetoric at the time. Yes, I don't think that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and the rest of the elites who sat around thinking up the uh, the New Republic would appreciate being called rank amateurs uh, by uh, Joe Diagiardi or having that implied. And the don't tread on me iconography of the revolution, even though it becomes really sort of central to the Tea Party, it actually was also showing up at rallies and town halls even before the, the official creation of the Tea Party in 2009. And so, you know, we see a lot of that in John Adams, and we can imagine that the makers were probably interested in reclaiming or correcting that narrative and reclaiming this iconography. Yes. And I think in, in contrast here, the six-hour miniseries Sons of Liberty seems to be playing to a Tea Party crowd in a way. It appeared on the History Channel, and we have to say much of the History Channel's programming tends toward the conservative, a small C conservative that at times overlaps with a more overtly political agenda. And just by paying attention to the kinds of commercials that air on the History Channel, you can you know tell that they have an older viewership. With this in mind, Sons of Liberty is an interesting take on our three lies, which is why we've included it here. The show was in production around 2013-2014, and it's worth reminding listeners about the global revolutionary context of that time. It was 
by this point, a few years after the early promise of the Arab Spring had had died and was replaced by the slow motion genocide in Syria and an equivocating Obama administration doing basically nothing about it. Moreover, we had the Republican Congress who launched numerous interminable Benghazi investigations focused on then Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. And so what should have been a moment focused on the idealism of mostly young people in the Middle East and North Africa, much like our buff heroes in Sons of Liberty trying to overthrow oppressors, what happened in fact is that it sort of devolved into these stories about how self-serving politicians had figured out that they could manipulate fast-moving events for their own cynical purposes. And this is what we see in the Sons of Liberty. Right. And when the series was being filmed in 2014, there are you know, a number of events, foreign and domestic, that reinforced that the sense of idealism was not only passe, but naive. And, and that really what mattered was self-interest. That's a natural way of things. Um, the ongoing corruption and descent into chaos and what was nominally socialist Venezuela, Putin's brazen invasion and occupation of the Crimea with heart, you know, no repercussions, really. Uh, this, these all fed a, a pro-America, totally unself-critical wave of news coverage that was reinforced and championed across the media spectrum. And meanwhile, back in the U.S. of A., Rogue rancher and right-wing cause celebre Cliven Bundy refused to recognize the authority of the U.S. government. And this really kind of seemed to match the global mood. He was all about remembering the good old days of the early republic, so much so that he thought nothing of preaching this insane, putrid racial nonsense and that he had lots and lots of anti-government fans who were happy to take it all in. Let's listen to some of that. We never had a standoff with the federal government. We had a, a protest to our county sheriff. We asked our county sheriff to disarm the federal government. And he did not disarm the federal bureaucrats. He let we the people go before uh, 150, 200 army of the federal government, putting us, putting not, not only Bundy's life in, the, in uh, danger, but putting America's people in danger. He allowed us to, he allowed the federal government and their army. When since does the federal government have a, supposed to have an army that comes against we the people? When did that ever happen in America? It happened on Bundy, Bundy Ranch. They stick their, stuck their guns down our throats. And that is definitely not what our founding fathers intended to happen in America. Sad to say, not on the fo- not so extreme when we think about where things are now. You know, in this confused and contradictory political climate, it shouldn't be surprising, I suppose, that the longstanding subjects of American civic worship, the Sons of Liberty, would get a complete makeover. In this series, they are motivated by financial self-interest and democracy is replaced by capitalism as the organizing ideal for these patriots. This is a fact that seems to go unnoticed by the writers, directors, and reviewers of the series, and I think that's both telling and maybe kind of scary. 
Yeah, let's listen here as the show's producer expresses his total lack of familiarity with even the most rudimentary history of the revolutionary era. And I think this explains why the overt celebration of capitalism is what truly comes out on the screen. I could just imagine how many times somebody pitched the Revolutionary War to history. So I wanted to try and find something different. If there was something different, it it made me think, wait a minute, is there any way that the 1760s were like the 1960s? You know, there's a revolution. So is there any relation? So I called up the people in my company and said, how can we find out if there was any teen angst in the Revolutionary War? They looked into it for a couple of hours, found the Sons of Liberty story, which is all these guys, Paul Revere, John Hancock, Sam Adams, John Adams, all in their 20s and early 30s. And called me back and they said, oh my God, this is an amazing story that somehow we all don't know. It was a new twist on the Revolutionary War that somehow no one has made before. Ugh. It, it's hard to listen to that total disregard for historical knowledge. Uh, Anyone can be a historian. It only takes a couple of hours, kids, and you too can discover stuff no one has ever heard of before if you go on Google. (laughs) So now that we've offered up a basic recap of both the shows and the historical context within which they were made, let's get into some details that jumped out at us. Uh, One theme that is shared by both series is the idea of filial pieties, father and sons. In the 18th century, sons did their father's bidding. They chose the same career. They went to their fathers to uh, get their blessing for marriage or for really any other big decision that they would make in their lives. The father was literally king of his castle and the patriarch of his family. This dynamic then also extended outside of the family and to the social relationships, the crown, in this case, the king, and his subjects. Yeah, absolutely. And it was unheard of for colonists to challenge the crown. And if they did, they should expect a swift punishment. Colonists should be grateful loyal, obedient, and accept their status in the empire. But the Americans, or proto-Americans, didn't, and they hoped and expected to be seen as British citizens, not treated as errant schoolchildren. I think each show is really good at linking father-son tensions uh, in their plots to this larger, sometimes unspoken issue of the revolution. You know, this, why don't you love me, daddy? Uh, the crown's coldness is the straw that breaks the camel's back for many of the founding fathers. Or in the case of the weirdly flipped Sam Adams, John Adams situation in Sons of Liberty, John Adams is sort of portrayed as the older, stodgier, and initially more conservative of the Adamses. And the now younger Sam Adams is often being characterized as either betraying his father's beliefs or following in his father's footsteps. And yeah, we have a great scene in Sons of Liberty that 
that gets to this metaphorical father-son dynamic. And that's when Benjamin Franklin, you know, a good old good Dean Norris here, is once again getting dressed down by Parliament for colonial insubordination. In this case, it's the Boston Tea Party. And first of all, you don't talk to Dean Norris this way. Um, you'll come to regret it. But it's if you listen to this this back and forth, it's really interesting how patriarchal the Parliament is trying to be here, and and the word sons is important in the, the conversation. So let's listen. This is yet another incident in a long line of treasonable acts committed by a childish and insubordinate colony. It was a simple protest, one that admittedly got a bit out of hand. But it... ninety thousand shillings of royal merchandise dumped into the harbour. Mr. Wedderburn. And while they commit these heinous acts of terrorism, their governor does nothing. Let it all happen right under his nose. The people of Boston are merely reacting to a policy in which they are forced to purchase. Nobody is forcing the colonists to behave in this way. They are simply defending their natural rights as Englishmen. Englishmen? (laughs) (laughs) These colonists are committing treason. They are thugs and outlaws, the sons of tyranny. They should be beaten into submission. Suppose you were to send an additional military force into Boston. What do you think the reaction would be? Your soldiers won't find a rebellion there, but they may inspire one. If you make martyrs of these men, the people of Boston won't see them as sons of tyranny. They'll be seen as sons of liberty. Yes, notice how the prime minister calls the colonists childish and immature, needing to be beaten into submission. You know, this is sort of parenting 101 for this era, no doubt. But also, this is the assumption about the the patriarchal relationship between the home country and the colony. The other thing that we can detect, of course, in this clip is also the lessons learned from the forever wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is definitely this subtext, barely subtext in what Benjamin Franklin's saying that, you know, if you try to crush them, you will in fact create terrorists. The series, John Adams, is often a plodding biography that details faults as well as his brilliance. Uh, For one, he was not the best father, or maybe he was pretty typical of the era. Uh, He bullied his son, John Quincy, into law and politics. Did quite well there, I heard. Um, But he disowned Charles while he was actually president. Charles winds up dying penniless in a Philadelphia flophouse. But when John Adams meets King George III in his position as the U.S. ambassador to Britain, we feel the same sort of disapproval coming on to Adams from the king. Uh, Adams assures the king that they are still family in some ways, just all grown up, not that this pleases father. And in this clip, you hear a a very reasonable sounding King George complimenting Adams for his honesty and devotion to his new nation. But you also get this sense of disappointment that somehow the childish Americans have disappointed their parents. I think myself more fortunate than all of my fellow citizens in having the distinguishing honor 
and to be the first to stand in your majesty's presence in a diplomatic character. I shall esteem myself the happiest of men if I can be instrumental in restoring the confidence and affection between peoples who, though separated by an ocean and under different governments, have the same language, similar religion, and kindred blood. The circumstances of this audience are so extraordinary. The language you have now held is so extremely proper that I not only receive with pleasure the assurance of the friendly disposition of the United States, but that I am very glad that the choice has fallen on you to be their minister. I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to separation. But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. I pray, Mr. Adams, that the United States does not suffer unduly from its want of a monarchy. Notice how George couldn't resist mentioning that the young United States would want for a monarchy. In other words, oh, you silly boy, you think you're a grown-up, but you have no idea. Uh, you'll pay for your youthful hubris. So it's kind of like, you you know, it's passive-aggressive parenting there. You know, if you feel like you can really go out on your own, I don't know. Um, but of course, Adams was also run out of England soon after this because the press trashed him. Uh, they were doing that even back then. Uh, he just also is never meant to be a diplomat. And another way that we get this in uh, the miniseries John Adams is how there is this assumed global pecking order. When we see John Adams uh, and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin in France, we see how the French aristocracy are absolutely incapable of imagining that what's going on in the colonies is really of any significance. They're so immature, after all. And that is interestingly a, a critique, if you wanted to see it this way, of America's lazy confidence about its superpower status in the 2000s or, you know, even today. And this comes up again in the next episode, this whole question of filial piety, because the relationship between the loyalist father and the rebel son is so central to the whole series in Turn, Washington Spies. Yes, one of the, the many differences between our series here, how John Adams is really getting at the abstract idealism of the revolution, or at least trying to bring us back to that conventional narrative. And and. Yet in Sons of Liberty, it's all about self-interest as a new form of patriotism. And as we said, ironically, Sons of Liberty was probably closer to the truth. To get at that difference, we found a great clip in John Adams that actually takes place in France. It's, maybe it's a little bit ironic that the, the, the early United States is hashing out its Republican ideals in a monarchy that's about to collapse in France. But we have a, a scene where John Adams... Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin are lounging in a chateau discussing their competing philosophies about how American politics should be designed and what they expect 
to come of the new republic. And what it's interesting because it comes down to how much faith you have in humanity. So let's listen to that conversation. I expect that any constitutional document that emerges from Philadelphia will be as compromised as our Declaration of Independence. I am increasingly persuaded that the earth belongs exclusively to the living and that one generation has no more right to bind another to its laws and judgments than one independent nation has the right to command another. But surely the Constitution, as it did with the ones we wrote for our own states, is meant to establish the stability and the long-term legality essential to the continuation of civilized society. Yes, possibly. But I fear it could prove a breach in the integrity of our revolutionary ideals through which we'll pour the forces of reaction. Dr. Mr. Jefferson's pet topic is not the artful arrangement of political power, but the cordoning off of a space in which no power exists at all. You, sir, you are a walking contradiction. Mm, You're all contradictions, Mr. Indeed, yes. And what is government, ultimately, but the putting into effect of the lessons which we have learned in dealing with the contradictions in our own characters. You have a disconcerting lack of faith in your fellow man, Mr. A. And in yourself, if I may say. Yes, and you display a dangerous excess of faith in your fellow man, Mr. Jefferson. Yes, it's really interesting to hear there the the sense of sort of unquestioning entitlement that these men have that they can be sitting in this garden and can be basically formulating the structure of the new nation as if they are wholly representative of it. In Sons of Liberty, the narrative is, as Brian was saying, surprisingly and maybe even refreshingly honest about what were the real motivations for many rebels in the colonies. And those motivations were the self-serving notion of wanting lower taxes and really straight out avarice at times. And the key to tracing this evolution in Sons of Liberty is the character of John Hancock, who starts out as a corrupt businessman with British protection. And as things heat up in Boston and his advantages slip away, he begins to see the light of a new way of doing things that would allow him to continue to pursue these self-interests under a new model. So here we'll start by playing this brief scene where Hancock and Governor Hutchinson, who was the British governor in Boston at the time, is talking about the new taxes levied by Parliament. Every day my ship is impounded, I am losing thousands of shillings. Mr. Hancock, you are to turn over the liberty Governor, and pay me what I am owed. Mr. Hancock, you seem to be confused as to the nature of our relationship. I am not confused, Governor. I pay you. And in return, you keep the customs officials off my back and my ships. That is the arrangement you had with my uncle. That is the arrangement that you have with me. Well, Sam Adams and his band of thugs seem to have put an end to that relationship. You have a deal. A deal? What's this about a deal? There is no deal. Just who do you think you are to me? 
to the crowd. You're nothing but a glorified smuggler. Not a smuggler? Then what are you, a businessman? That pay your taxes, everyone else does, why not you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear just how transactional John Hancock can be and, and really almost till the very last moment remains that way. Uh, I do have to like you know, the moniker glorified smuggler by Hutchison there. It kind of fits. Uh, Hancock reaches out after this to Sam Adams, who's always the idealist in the uh, among the sons, and makes it clear that you know his interest in helping his protest is financial. When Sam Adams makes it public with the Sons of Liberty coins and all that, you know, making this no longer a secret smuggling operation, listen to Hancock's reaction. What are you doing? We are getting away with this. Are you trying to get caught? I'm doing what we set out to do. No, you're not. You want to keep making money, don't you? You want to keep living that privileged life of yours? Yes, of course I do. But this is business. Let's not go making it political. You try so hard. It doesn't matter how many parties you throw, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you will never be British. You have so much integrity, don't you? Without me and my money, you would be rotting in a jail cell right now. At least I know which side I'm on. Why does there have to be sides? Because there are. You are playing a very dangerous game. You are headed down a road that you will not be able to come back from. Maybe it isn't a game. Then that is even worse. Right. What one of them is seeing as political, the other is seeing as financial. And quite frankly, where they end up is seeing that those two things belong together. And what finally gets Hancock to fully sign on to the revolt? Well, It's when British General Gage quarters in his house. Suddenly, this is an outrage and a violation of his fundamental rights. Mr. Adams, I'm in. Whatever you want, whatever you need, I am with you. Then why should we trust you? How do we know you're not working for Gage now? I resent that. Do I have a sudden change of heart? He took my house. <laughs> of course he did. Look at you. Still only up for yourself. I mean, you're only here now because you've been booted out of your little fantasy world. You are not one of us. So why don't you get out? Get out. No, wait. I have a plan. We need him. For what? His money. I'm in, he says. Uh, and, uh, and Sam Adams with a big smile on his face. So so we get to see the idealistic Hancock in the last episode, urging Sam Adams to resist rushing off to fight, you know, physically in, in what will become you know, Lexington and Concord, and, and stay and do the hard work of convincing Congress to band together. So here he is pleading poverty now, John Hancock, uh, speaking to Sam Adams, trying to get him to remember why he started this in the first place. What are you doing? I'm going somewhere that I can be useful. You can be useful here. Nothing's happening here. We've been at this for weeks. No, your cousin, Mr. Franklin, me, we have been at it. You have been no help at all. Have you done anything to convince these men? These men... 
These men are all terrified. They're all just in it for themselves. They all want something. Yes, they do. But you do not. I didn't understand at first, but now I do. All we want is for things to be fair for everyone. If you leave, everyone else will leave. You have to stay and convince them. You have convinced me. A man with everything to lose. Look at me. I'm broke. This. This is all I have left. You're the only one with no agenda. You're the only one who can make these men hear the truth. And so here through this plot line, we get a clear, stark example of the libertarian strain of the American philosophy. Uh, And it's much closer to the truth. Many of the patriots of Boston were smugglers. The wealthy of Boston and New York City and Philadelphia were less inclined to protest very much against British laws because they were more motivated by the bottom line than by ideals. And while you do see the reality of British soldiers being forced upon the civilian population, you don't see the colonial settlers further inland who disregarded laws prohibiting Western settlement and then demanded that same British military protection for them and their farms from both the First Nations people whose land they had taken and, of course, potentially the dreaded French. Yeah, and what's disturbing in Sons of Liberty, though, is that that capitalism is treated as a political system. Democracy and capitalism are conflated So freedom is reduced simply to the freedom to make money. Uh, And again, that's, you know, maybe refreshingly honest for the Sons of Liberty series. The rejection of arbitrary rule by a monarch, you know, a discussion of the of a contrast of the constitutional government is missing. Yes. And so in John Adams, the miniseries, the blood is drained out and we're left with nothing but abstract ideals and talking heads. And then in Sons of Liberty, the idealism is drained out and we're left with nothing but self-interest and adventure seeking. Let's conclude with our recommendations. And so we have John Adams, the HBO prestige series, and I recommend it because it is great acting. You do appreciate these performances that won so many awards. It's well done. It's, it's educational. Uh, if not terribly exciting, it's at least beautiful to look at and appreciate the acting involved. And it's also, like I said, a good window into what the early Republic was really like, you know, well beyond the revolution. Remember, you know, both Adams and Thomas Jefferson die on July 4th, 1826. And, and so there's a lot of those decades are well covered in this series compared to some of the others. Uh, Sons of Liberty is, I will recommend it because I think it's amusing and funny and, and weird in a way. Uh, I think if you have a, uh, uh, if you want to understand what we're getting at with terms of how unusual it is to have this, this um, self-interest and the hyper-capitalist 
perspective of the revolution front and center, then you'll enjoy it. But also the the performance by Rafe Spall is is great. I really like this character of John Hancock the more I think about it. Yes, I agree. It's almost as if Rafe Spall is sort of in a different show than everybody else's in the sense that the caliber of his acting, it, it, you know, exceeds every, you know, all of the others. Not that anybody's a real stinker, but Rafe Spall has gone on to have a really interesting career and I root for him to appear in as many things as possible because I really like watching him. But yeah, I mean, I think that I would in essence be kind of horrified at if I thought too closely about how many people have watched Sons of Liberty and inhaled that as a totally legitimate narrative of of what American ideals are, because that's scary. But on the other hand, in many ways, it is a more honest representation of the early uh, motivations. And so that does definitely make it it interesting. You know, John Adams, uh, the miniseries is, as you say, a- extremely high quality. It certainly has everybody in it. And so just to also uh, remind our, our listeners how these shows uh, refute or or reinforce the lies that we were talking about at the beginning. You know, our first lie, if you recall, was that the revolution was simple and quick and had an obvious outcome. And both of these shows in some ways reinforce that. Sons of Liberty for ending at the Declaration of Independence as if that was all that needed to happen. And in John Adams for having most of the struggle of the revolution happen off camera because John Adams wasn't involved. Second, that the founding fathers were the only important actors in the revolution. We certainly get that from both of these shows. And then, as we've discussed, uh, Sons of Liberty does interestingly complicate the third lie, this notion that the war was waged between idealistic freedom fighters and corrupt occupiers. Yes, the revolution was not inevitable and neither is it secure. I think Adams leaves us with the old adage that every generation is responsible for safeguarding the fragile republic, you know, the, the revolution never ends idea. Imagine what a series on the American Revolution would look like after the last couple of years. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah. And the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon.